I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi friends, you're listening to a live recording of the panel on the Trans and Bike Race held at Look Mom Their Hands on Tuesday, the 31st of July. So thank you everybody for joining us tonight. Can everyone hear me okay? Tonight we're just going to be discussing the Trans Am Bike Race. 2008 race finished in, how many weeks ago was it now? A month ago now? But it takes place in June and it goes um, from Astoria in Oregon to Yorktown in Virginia and it's 4,200 miles. So it's a pretty hefty race. I took part in it myself in 2016. I did not finish it. I got hit by a car on the first day and fractured my collarbone and dislocated my shoulder. But I didn't realize, and I kept riding for 2,500 miles. So I have some idea of what these guys went through. I can't speak about the end of the race because I never got there. I gave up after Colorado. Went home and got some much-needed rest. doctor told me off. I don't think I've ever been yelled at by a doctor before, but... If you go ride your bike with a broken shoulder, they don't, they don't really like that. But yeah, so I'm just going to pass the mic around so everybody can introduce themselves. Um, we're going to talk for maybe half an hour, 40 minutes, and then just open up to questions. So keep your questions stored for us. Frank? Hi. Uh, so my name's Darren Franks. I finished in uh, 20, 22 days uh, with the 12th fastest time. Uh, I took a, a small flight in the middle, um, so it's perhaps not official. Hi, I'm uh, Stephen Pawley, finished in about 27 days, so pretty much the middle of the pack, um, and had a, yeah, had a good time. Hello, I'm Steve Haynes, um, did Trans Am in just under 21 days. So. I didn't know you did it that quick, well done mate, that was, that was really good. <laughs> I'm George Driscoll, and uh, me and Dan Tovey here entered as a pair, as novices, and we did it in 35 days. So, I guess we'll just start right away with... The lows. <laughs> just, we'll just get right in there. So I want everyone just to tell me about sort of your worst day during the race. <laughs> Keep it lighthearted. Um, my worst day would be day 10, I think, um, late leaving Pueblo. Just after Ordway, I slashed a tire, had slashed the sidewall of my rear tire. And I was faced with an option, do I carry on? put a tie boot in and carry on about 350 miles towards Newton or backtrack 70 miles to back to Pueblo, get a new tire and uh, fix that. So I had to make the decision and I went back to Pueblo and at the same time I started getting knee problems. Um, 
that, yeah, was very frustrating. But some medication and a bit of stretching, that, it sorted that out. But what should have taken, I think, two days to get from Pueblo to Newton, in the end took me four days as a result of having to backtrack, take it easy, and then gentle, soft tapping across to Newton. Uh, worst day probably was learning about headwinds. Now, it's probably not the best time to learn about them, but it was awful. <laughs> it was like cycling in syrup, going uphill, and you think you get to the top of the hill. At least when you get to go down the other side, you can just rest for a bit, but then you get to the other side, and there's so much wind. You're not going anywhere when you take your feet for a rest. <laughs> so you have to keep on pedaling down, and then you realize you've got 100 miles of that. It just is very daunting. So that was probably the worst day for me. Do you have a worst day? Um, my worst day would have been about day five. Um, we didn't really do much training. <laughs> we didn't do as much as we should have done, actually. But um, I had a, a knee injury on, on, on the fifth day. So that, that whole day, meant it was just getting worse and worse and worse. By the end of the day, I could barely bend my knee like, at all. So I was thinking, like, the next day, in my head, I'd quit, basically, that day. So um, it basically... Yeah, like I say, I, I, I quit um, at the end of that day, but then I basically carried on, and then it just it basically ended up getting better. I don't know how, but day five would have been worst day, definitely. Um, Sorry. Worst day for me was day seven. Uh, Stephen was there when it happened, actually. Um, so I'd been suffering with a mechanical problem that I couldn't diagnose for a few days, um, and then then we diagnosed it. <laughs> um, so. Uh, it basically it was a it was a, a problem that I just could not fix um, on the road, so um, it meant scratching from the race or kind of moving to uh, Jackson Hole, waiting for a replacement bike, um, and that uh, that took eight days to arrive. It was supposed to be a next day delivery, but it took eight days. So I sat there for eight days just watching the race get away from me. Um, that was probably the that was my low, definitely. Well, I, I had a bad week more than, and it just was like Groundhog Day every day, Kansas, I think, which, yeah, the, the sort of the K word uh, nobody wants to talk about. Um, headwinds, uh, 40, 45 degree heat, straight roads, um, nothing to see, nowhere to get food. Um, and I was kind of on my own, so I didn't see any riders for about six or seven days, and was pretty demoralizing. So the reason I wanted to start with that is because I kind of want to set the scene of how brutal these races can be from the beginning. Um, and so I guess on to my next question for you guys is more about why you wanted to do this race in particular. Um, you know, <laughs> just heard it can get pretty miserable out there. So what is it that motivates you to do them? Um, I... I've done a couple of these races before, done the transatlantic way, done the transcontinental. So they, they come a bit addictive and you keep wanting to go longer and longer and see what you can do. Um, and America was sort of the next one sort of flashing on the horizon. And it's somewhere that I've never really wanted to go to America. It's, I've never really been attracted to the, to the country. But the landscapes were, was something that I wanted to go and see, particularly in the first half of the race through the Rockies um, down to... Uh, Kansas um, so that was the real motivation for me to do it um, why I do it I don't know um, I'd, I'd like I like the training part leading up to the race I like the, 
the discipline that you need to, to get ready. Um, and then I like to find out what I can do and what I can't do. And, you know, when it all goes wrong, that, that's when you really find out what, what you're made of or how little you're actually made of. Because, in, in, yeah, it's, when, it, when it goes wrong, like, like I had problems with, with, with my knee, it's amazing how quickly everything can unravel psychologically. Um, and it's that bit that I find quite interesting. Um, we wanted to do it after watching uh, Inspire to Ride and uh, possibly a slightly roast-tinted version of the reality once you get there. But it just looked amazing, and Mike Hall's spirit coming off the screen, just so humble, but you knew really he was going through hell. And I just thought, what an amazing way to see a, such a diverse country. And neither, neither Dan or I had really cycled at all, and we just thought, what a ridiculous insurmountable challenge <laughs> we'd want to take on and just get to the end and Dan is incredibly strong mentally I'm not so much and I knew he'd have enough to carry us both to the end so that's one of the reasons and just to go back a step the night where his knee was so bad that mentally he quit if you know Dan he just does not quit at anything so I knew it must have been bad because actually I was texting a few people advice on how to fix the knee problem um, I think I might have texted you, Darren, and he, th he might have said, like, uh, try moving your saddle two millimeters or something like that. And I suggested that to Dan, and he looked at me like he was going to punch me in the face. And I just thought, oh, I'll just uh, go to bed then. And, uh, but the next day, and he didn't tell me at the time, but the next day he actually woke up knowing that he couldn't cycle on his knee, but had resolved that he was going to go as far as he could, and if that meant he wasn't going to walk right for the rest of his life, <laughs> he was going to do it anyway. And that's kind of why we took on the challenge in the first place, was to stretch ourselves to a you know, beyond the limits of what we thought were capable. And Dan was rewarded with his knee gradually getting better because he did move his saddle two millimeters. <laughs> and somehow that fixed the problem. So in a nutshell, that's why we started doing it. I don't know if you want to, yeah. Yeah, so I turned 40 in January. Um, and stupidly in the depths of the UK winter at the end of last year, I thought, what, what can I do to celebrate? Um, obviously the wrong decision, having done TCR and some other long rides before, and I did remind myself for 16 hours every day that that was a, a silly decision. But, um, yeah, why we do it, I, I don't think anybody knows why we do it, but uh, we do. <laughs> um. I think the guys have covered most of it, to be honest. Um, for me, it's, I'm, I'm drawn to the extreme side of things. Um, I kind of, it's, it's not pleasant while you do it. This is a very definition of type two. This is, this is not really fun while we're doing it, I don't think. I don't, I don't know if anybody else kind of actually enjoys the act itself. Um, I, I, I don't think I do. Um, but, uh, but I like the, the place that it puts me into. I like to get fucked up. And then, and then you, you kind of it strips away all the nonsense that doesn't really matter, all the stuff that we kind of build up day to day that we think is important. And you realize probably day two or day three what is and what isn't. That all gets kind of dropped away. And then life just gets really, really simple. It's just about kind of moving forwards, finding food, finding shelter, staying healthy. Um, and that's it. And it puts you in this meditative state where you get to... You're just free of all the baggage, um, and you get to think very, very clearly, um, and that's that's a very rare thing today. 
So that's, that's why I keep coming back. I'm going to add a little bit, too. I think, um, for me personally, one of the, I mean, all the reasons you guys have touched on, you touched on it a little bit, but I think it's part of the act of exploring as well. I mean, getting to see landscapes in a way that you would never get to otherwise. Um, if you did a road trip across America in a car, you just would not get the same experience that you get on a bike. I think when you travel by bike, it's quite humbling because you are literally suffering through everything. Like, if the wind is strong that day, you feel it. If the like gradient of the road is shit like you're pushing harder um and so you you sort of have to feel like every moment of your journey but it also makes you very unthreatening to other people i think people see you on a bike and they kind of want to help you immediately because they're like what the hell are you doing here like how have you got to this obscure town you, you when do, they realize being, being you're just... vulnerable you do bring out the best in other people the people are very very keen to show you like as much hospitality as possible that's a really lovely thing mm-hmm. and i think i mean in america i found it more than anywhere that i've written i think was just some of the people and the conversations that i had and i mean so to put into context because i got hit on the first so i got hit 50 miles in on the first day so i was kind of knocked out of the race from the beginning um I spent a day in hospital getting some stitches and bandaged up and then had to go buy a new wheel and then restarted. So I was about two and a half days behind the rest of the race from the beginning. So it was sort of about catching up, but I also just wanted... I was saying to the guys at the beginning when we were just chatting amongst ourselves, for me it was I didn't go all that way and do all the training to just ride 50 miles and then fly back to the UK. So I think it was a bit of stubbornness, which I think probably everyone will agree is a trait that you need to have if you do these races. Um, <laughs> You've got to be pretty stubborn. Um, and so for me, it was, that was kind of the motivation to keep going. But I was able to sort of spend my time uh, kind of talking to people a little bit more. Like I think I was averaging about 150 miles a day when I was doing it. So it's not as much as I'd hoped to, um, which meant I got to have some good conversations. But what kind of interactions interesting people um craziness did you guys experience on the route this year um so i was i was trying to push quite hard so i didn't really have much time for interactions um it's always a tricky dilemma kind of touring versus racing you meet so many amazing characters but you're always watching the clock so you never get to really indulge um the few times where i did have some interesting interactions were probably the worst for my race um there was one guy Crazy Larry in Damascus. Um, that's his actual name. He's, uh, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's perfectly named. Um, it was fascinating, but slow. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I think, yeah, I think that if you're gonna if you're gonna tour, it's it's amazing to 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 meet all these characters, but it, they don't necessarily lend themselves to to racing. So. Um, are there are there any Americans here? Because. Pretty much every interaction was a little bit interesting, but um, I was I, I, I tan quite well, and the only interaction I had, which I think afterwards was a bit unpleasant, maybe was I was sitting in a in a gas station having some food, and this this gentleman came and started asking me the, sort of the usual questions about you know where I'm going and so forth, and uh, he then asked me where my grandfather was from. I was like, okay. Um, well he, was, well, he was born in England, okay, um, and, and, and your father, well, South Africa. And then he, he said, are you sure? Like, are, you, are you sure you're not Hispanic? 
I'm like, dude, I'm definitely not Hispanic. So I, I showed him the tan lines, and, and he just sort of left it at that. But it's quite an interesting, interesting one. Um, for, for myself, one of the most in, uh, interesting interactions was, I think, in Jeffrey City, which is a tiny place just after Saltwater Lake. And there's, a, there's hardly anything there. There's a pottery shop, a bar, and a few, few dwellings. There's not much there at all. Um, went into the bar full of sort of rugged workmen having their steak dinners and I walk in in my lycra wanting some, some dinner and, and, and stuff and there's, there's just the guy behind the bar who looks at me chewing on a stick asking whether I'm one of these speed racers sort of coming through and then another chap from Wyoming who tells me that he rides a horse and he can ride it all day without seeing a single fence. I forget buildings or roads or anything like that so just the vastness of the country um, and then of course the dot watchers who, who come in and just stop you halfway through, they're always very interesting although I don't know how the other races felt but Virginia it seemed like they were hunting you down it was, it was like a tag team, it was ridiculous but sort of before then they were sort of not very intermittent and that, that was really nice, that was really cool um, Similar to you um, me and Dan were a pair, and uh, like you say, the lycra doesn't really live much to the imagination <laughs> for a lot of people, and our team colours were pink, and like any time we went into a situation where it was a bit more of a cowboy sort of zone, there was literally a bar we went in that had saloon doors, <laughs> and when we got in, there was about eight like Hell's Angel type bikers sat down, and I just looked at them, and I just thought, <sighs> yep, and uh, they all sort of looked at me, and they were like, yeah, he's... Uh, He's one of those funny folk sort of thing. And it was just, there was a lot of moments like that, which was then confirmed by, there was a young lad about this big with a mullet. <laughs> and he asked Danny if I was his boyfriend. And I was just like, because it's pink, which I thought was quite funny. And um, another situation is we were caught out in a storm, because uh, we always think we can just cycle through. Me, Dan, and actually we're cycling with uh, Andrew at the time. He's just there. He'd never had chocolate milk before this situation, by the way, <laughs> which is insane. And uh, we were cycling through a storm, and there was lightning going off really close, and it was started getting really heavy, really windy, and it started to feel quite dangerous. And uh, a lady just pulled the window down and said, yeah, you should probably get out of the storm. So we did, and we went and sat on their porch, and she fed us macaroni and cheese, and the whole family came out, and they were so lovely. And then uh, the <laughs> father of the family was telling us how, like, what he does for fun, and he hunts, and he eats things. And he was telling me how he was driving home one day, <laughs> And he saw a giant snapper turtle coming across the road. So him and his son jump out and wrestle this snapper turtle into the back of his truck. They take it home and they eat it. And he reckons afterwards, his dad told him, based on the size of the shell, that he reckons he was about 150 to 200 years old. <laughs> and he said, uh, and he goes, I almost felt bad about it. And I was just like, and I was trying to be, I'm quite outspoken, so I'd be like, what I really wanted to say was, you definitely should feel bad about that. But I was like, mm -hmm, yeah, was it tasty? Well, so there was a few moments like that, just different people. I, um, I've had a few moments like that. When I came through Wisdom, I stayed in a, a bed and breakfast that night. And as I walked in, I, um, the lady who ran the bed and breakfast was, had big vats of, I don't know, what it, like, whatever you dissolve the flesh off animal bones in to taxidermia. Um, so she basically had these big bats and was like dipping whole deer into them. And I'm vegan. 
And so it's kind of like, I'm like, you know, do your thing, that's cool, but I'm just going to kind of slowly sink away. Um, and I was like, oh, is there anywhere to eat nearby? And she's like, well, I've got some deer. And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, anywhere else? And in the, there was a bar in town, and it literally has side above the, the bar that said, we shoot vegetarians. And I'm like, okay, cool. So how am I going to order something vegan without telling them, like, that I don't eat meat or cheese? So I ordered a ham and pepperoni, or ham and pineapple pizza with just the pineapple and no cheese and no ham, um, which... Got some strange looks, but managed to get some food. Um, yeah, so speaking of food, what's the best thing you ate and what's the weirdest thing you ate on the race? Uh, the best thing was breakfast on day three in Baker City. Um, Huevos Ranchos or something like that. But it had, it had vegetables, which was the first vegetables in three days. And it was, it was great. And eggs and all, all sorts. That was really good. Um, and then after that, it didn't get too interesting, to be fair. It was a, just the usual mix of service station nonsense and fast food. Um, but just chocolate, chocolate milk was mentioned <laughs> earlier. Um, on, when I, I left Lolo in the morning and stopped off as, at a service station before Chief Joseph Pass, and I bought a carton of chocolate milk. But America, it's big cartons, and this thing was huge, but I'd bought it, so I was going to drink this chocolate milk. And... It had two and a half days' worth of saturated fat intake, which I had drunk, and got back on the bike, and the blood had just rushed to my stomach, and I was feeling a bit unwell. And without getting too graphic, I ended up with chocolate milk splashed on my socks. It just, it, it, it couldn't stay. Well, snapper turtle is delicious. I can, I can tell you that for nothing. Um... The worst part of it is just the lack of vegetables. And, like, every menu and every diner, like, you get there, because I've been diet. I lost, like, 14 kilograms in preparation, so my diet had been really restricted. And I was just salivating over waffles and chicken and things like that. And two days in, you're just like, for the love of God, are there no vegetables on any menu? It's like nothing. It's just pancakes, maple syrup, bacon, fried chicken the whole time. So, like, actually, one of my favorite things ended up being, like, a can of V8 vegetable juice, because it just felt incredible which is ridiculous but that's how you know scarce vegetables were so um there was another storm situation on uh luxor going up to i don't know if you remember that the um we basically were riding pretty much all day in rain and drenched through we got to uh the top of luxor ridge where we were staying for that night and then we're just closing the uh the, the bar up and the woman basically put us together a, a ham sandwich it was a shit ham sandwich, like, but it was the best ham sandwich at the same time. So, yeah, that was my uh, best food. Of <laughs> a shit ham sandwich. I think for me, um, the highlight, I love a milkshake when I'm racing. Uh, kind of cold, liquid, fatty carbs. Um, just perfect. Um, so, uh, America's pretty good for milkshakes. Although, there was a heat wave happening through, through uh, Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, and Virginia. So despite getting into these hot states where they had dairy bars and milkshakes on tap, they'd all run out of ice cream. So that was, that was a challenge. But the rest of America was actually it's pretty, pretty boring for food. It's not like, the, like the, the transcontinental, which like three of us have done already, where, where there's just huge variety. America is pretty much the same thing all the way across. So it's hard, I found, to avoid eating too much protein, which is, you know, just slows you down, just grinds everything up. Um, yeah, so trying to find trying to find veg, some colours, and then uh, avoid too much protein. That was the hard part. 
Uh, well, sort of the first week I was struggling with uh, keeping food down and I had a Mexican and it all, it all, uh, that set it off, I think. But um, I moved on to a liquid diet and I discovered, um, after, after sort of getting a bit bored of Coke, I discovered the, the soda fountain machines in these petrol stations. And I also discovered Mountain Dew, which is an amazing drink if you've ever had it. It's, it's got more caffeine than Coke. It's got more sugar than Coke. It's, it's brilliant. <laughs> Plus, the, 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 the cup sizes are in, in the U.S. are fantastic. I mean, I, I went and, you know, you, you know, this is nothing. You know, you get these 32-ounce jobbies and you put a bit of ice in it. And then, I, you know, I sarcastically said, oh, don't you have a bigger one? And the ladies, oh, yeah, of course we do. <laughs> they got like 44-ounce, 52-ounce, 100-ounce, whatever you want. It's like, it's brilliant. Really good and cheap, only about 89 cents for a mahoos of... Uh, They have their huge, and they had the half iced tea, half lemonade ones. And literally every store I'd go into, I'd down like two or three of those before I even thought about food. I, I do have one, actually, I thought about. Um, I don't drink coffee. Um, I just don't like coffee, but I got a taste for um, iced lattes because it was the only thing that was available in one shop. And then there was a point in the race where I stopped at a service station uh, sometime in the morning, and there was just nothing I could get to eat. So I ended up buying a load. Uh, it was a big box of Cocoa Pops. And I, I, yeah, I had a bowl of cocoa pops, and instead of milk, I used I used a latte. Um, What's the one thing that you learnt about this race that you would take into other, like about either your setup or yourself that you would take into your next race if uh, you do another one? For me, um, this was this was the first race that I've done where I didn't consider myself a rookie. Uh, so I've done a few, few before this uh, and made all the mistakes. Um, so this one was about taking everything that I'd learned. Um, and the biggest lesson that proved to be successful was about, um, about pacing and recovery. So I take my recovery very, very seriously when I'm, when I'm racing now. So I, I use a routine and I'm, I'm very precious about my sleep. So I've learned over the years that I can't get good sleep in a hedge. Um, or a bus stop. Um, so now I prioritize finding good quality rest. So usually a hotel, it's only for four hours, but four hours of good quality rest is enough for me, whereas eight hours in a bus stop just doesn't really do anything. So, um, and I, uh, I made it seven days before the bike problem, um, but I felt fresh as a daisy after seven days, um, even on four hours sleep. So I think for me, getting a routine and having quality sleep um, that was the biggest difference yeah I think I learned not to race again um, having done the TCR and other things before I think um, I think the things I do regret are certainly you know um, taking your time and meeting people and seeing things along the road you know I've, I've seen other people's photographs and and, and their interactions with people and, and their, what they're eating for lunch and it looks amazing and, and when you're trying to race every day and trying to do 200 miles you not eat. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Well, you're not sleeping well. You know, not, you know, things are going wrong. You're grumpy. You're tired, and it's 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 the enjoyment factor isn't isn't there. And um, you know, not to put anybody off. Uh, you know, I think the races are are amazing. But having having done a couple of them, I think you know. Um, yeah, maybe that's just me, but you know, slowing down and seeing a bit of the world is, is also is also good fun. Um, yeah, not dissimilar to Darren. I, do, I like structure. I can only cycle long distances with a decent amount of sleep and structure. I can't go through the night like some people and just survive on one hour sleep. That's that's for a different that's for a different person. Um, and I've learned that, so I stuck to my plan. That was really good. If I, what would I do differently? I would take less clothing, um, or just buy better clothing so I wouldn't have to double up, just to cut down a bit on weight and uh, more gearing on the bike. Um, I had a one-on-one ratio, but I would have gone a bit lower. Um, well, me and Dan were learning everything really on the fly, but, uh, and we were absorbing whatever advice we could, wherever it came. And I met Darren uh, a couple of days before we left, and one of the things he said really stuck with us and then became a mantra probably for the second half of the race which was time in the saddle or tits if you want to look for the acronym and so then it was just like every day we've got right we've got to get up we've got to get some great tits today we've got to get it make sure we get them in the saddle so then that became like a jovial way of like just making light of the situation because it really does come down to time in the saddle because it doesn't really matter how much if you're pushing yourself that little bit that little bit more for two hours it makes such little difference to the 20 minutes you spend off your bike in a gas station. It, it's just time in the saddle. And then the more time went, went on, the less time we spent out of the saddle, the more in it and the better rest we got because we were afforded that time in the evening. So thanks, Darren. That really paid dividends. Okay, I know it's super hot, so I'm going to start opening it up to questions to the audience. Um, one question, three of you have done the Transcontinental and the Transamerica. How do they compare? Um, they're very different, um, very, very different. So the, on paper, it looks like the, the Trans Am is harder because it's so much longer. 
Um, so for reference, the transcontinental that's happening now is about 4,000 kilometers. The Trans Am is uh, roughly 7,000. Um, but I think the, the transcontinental is significantly harder. Um, it's a different country every day. It's different food, different currency. The geography changes so quickly um, and the route is not fixed. So there's that extra element of adventure to it. I find it much more raw. Um, not to underplay the, the, the Trans Am, it's, it's a hell of a thing. But, um, but I think the, the, the TCR is probably uh, a step up. Yeah, yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I mean, the, the, you know, sort of the, the route for the Trans Am, as, as Darren said, is, is, is planned. So you can just turn up and ride. Um, and focus on other things, you know, getting your equipment right and, and that sort of thing, whereas the transcontinental, you can spend three, four, five months planning routes and, and because the, the road networks in Europe, so, you know, there's, there's so many options, um, they literally take months of planning. Um, yeah. There's so many more ways yeah. to fuck up on yeah. the transcontinental. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, t the TCR is in more interesting because there are all the different route options, but with the Trans Am, you're all on the same route. So it's a basic time trial, um, which again adds its own sort of dynamic to it. Um, Trans Am, I hesitate to say it, but there are free miles. There are easier miles to be had than in Europe. It's up and down. It can be logistically, it's different with languages, with currency, with understanding what's on the menus, that, that, that sort of thing. Whereas in America, you can just go. And yes, you end up in eastern Colorado and Kansas, and it's flat. But it's flat, so just it's easy to ride. Okay, there'll be some winds, there'll be some crosswinds, but you just deal with that. You're not, you know, suddenly finding yourself in some horrendous hill in Slovenia that you didn't expect. It's pretty, it's, Trans Am is probably easier, yeah. yeah I, think, I think one more thing, though, is that uh, on the Trans Am, there are much longer distances where there's nowhere to resupply. Um, places are closed. Um, don't forget that the, the sort of the, the route you follow on the Trans Am is about 40 years old, and a lot of the little towns and things that you go through are pretty much ghost towns now. So you you may expect when you see on the map that there's a, a place you might be able to get some food or something, and you roll in, and it's literally deserted. Everything's boarded up. Um, you know, there's no water for 100 miles or something like that. So there are those things to consider as well. Yeah, I found that a lot too. Was when I did it, there was a heat wave, and so just getting water was really difficult on the Trans Am. Like I found, I was just basically letting myself get dehydrated because I was too afraid to drink the water I had on my, as I knew I wouldn't be able to resupply as much as I was going to need. Um, I don't know if you guys found that this year as well, but it, there would be times you come into a town and it'd be like you'd be so excited that you're like, yes, I've hit that checkpoint mentally that this is where I'm going to be able to get food and water and like have a little break, and you get there, and it's like, the store's open on Wednesday, and it's Tuesday, and you're like, okay, another 80 miles, and then I'll get my food and water. Yeah, yeah so I, I, I need a lot of liquid, um, so I just carried an insane amount of gay trade on me. I mean, it's incredible. So at, at sometimes it was four liters of the stuff, <laughs> just on various parts of the bike, just to make sure I didn't get dehydrated. Well, I didn't do the... Uh if you just have a thought, you can add it. Drink lots of water. It's really good advice. And similar experiences. It will say like something city, and you think, oh, thank God for that. And then you'll get there, and it's just, you know, it's just empty. 
So, yeah. But I mean, especially during the latter half in the Ozarks when there was a heat wave going on, that was new to us as well. And the you didn't realize how much water can come out of your body so quick. And like, it, you look down after a couple of hours and you're like, it's like you've just stepped out of a shower. It's ridiculous. And then you're just drinking so much, and then you forget about your electrolytes and you get dizzy. So it was, that was a huge learning curve for us as well. Any other questions? What are your next, what are your next bike plans? Um, so I think, as Stephen, you've already gone through some of the downsides of racing. So are you more interested in now doing racing or more adventure, slow-paced things? Um, I'm pretty much retired from cycling now. That's it. That's how I feel anyway. But, you know, um, yeah, it's a good question because you, you, when you finish these, these races, I mean, the, the initial feeling you get is I never want to do that again. Uh, I think we all, we all have the same idea there. And within about a week or two, you're really looking for the next, the next high. So there's, you know, the transatlantic way or, you know, trying to get onto the TCR or, you know, there is now a multitude of new events popping up. So, um, me personally, yeah, I think a bit of touring maybe and a bit of, as I said, to try and go and see, see some other things. Um, you know, I've cycled uh, Africa already and, and a few other continents. So um, I think that would be, it would be enjoyable. But it's still a bit too fresh. The scars are still open at the moment. So I think I'm going to leave it for now. Um, sort of similar. Um, I'd like to do some touring. Um, having raced for the last few years, it would be nice to, to take the pressure off and to have the opportunity to enjoy those interactions, you know, stop in places that you fall in love with and um, take your time over it. But um, I think next year, next year's likely to be, um, it's a Paris-Brest-Paris year, which comes around every four years. Um, so that's a 1,200-kilometer race. That's much shorter. It's the sort of distance you, um, if you're going to win it, you won't sleep. You just do that in one go. Um, so that, that might be the target next year. Um, but I, I'm certainly I'm not done with, with um, racing. Um, I, I, I'd still, I feel like this year the Trans Am was supposed to be my, um, my test to see all of the things that I've learned. Now that I'm not a rookie, you know, where do I really stand in the pecking order of things? Um, and that, was, that wasn't going to happen this year with the problems that I had. So um, I'd still like to do another TCR. Uh, I'm looking at my wife. She's scowling at me now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I'd still like to do a TCR to figure out where I stand in the order of things. Um, but um, that's probably not going to be next year. Do you guys want to do another race? I mean, well, as novices, we were like, we're going to do this. That's probably going to be it for us. And maybe we'll try something else. And uh, not to dip the mood too much, but like halfway through, even... Even though I loved the whole experience, like, there were accidents and there were things that happened along the way that really can get in your head. And some of the drivers are awful, which can get in your head. And, uh, and halfway through, I have to say, like, I told myself I was never going to do it ever again. But we were just laughing in the car on the way down. I was like, how far is it around the world? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. But we've been eyeing up the uh, TCR, um, looking at that, because sounds like it's harder and we, we don't want to go easier so we want to we want to see if there's something that can break us <laughs> so we're thinking TCR next um, I'll do something next year 
not, I think I know what it's going to be. Um, depends how much time I get off work. But I'm, I'm at a point where I've got a bit of momentum. If, if I stop and take a year out, I'm just worried. Well, not worried, but, you know, that it might not come back. So whilst I've got some momentum, I'll do, I'll do something else next year. Not sure what. And then after that, maybe stop. Maybe not. <laughs> That's I had a year off last year. You can come back. Don't worry. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to do PBP as well. Paris, Paris, Paris. It's on my list. And then um, Japanese Odyssey, if they run it again next year, which is uh, 2,500 kilometers around Japan. It looks really, really hilly. Like, really hilly. Uh, so... I think that's my thing now, which it's not at all. Um, you had a question, didn't you? Uh, just a quick one. Riding around London, you get loads of like near misses with cars, lorries, etc. Uh, were there any moments where your heart sort of stopped and thought, "Whoa, that was close"? About three. In 4,200 miles. Um, one logging truck that passed quite close. Um, I had a mirror on the left handlebar. So you could see when they were coming and if another vehicle was coming from in the other direction. So you could kind of brace yourself or just take it easy and be, be ready. Um, but there, there was one close pass with a logging truck and then two recreational vehicles towing um, yachts or sm small boats. The weekends were the worst, so who's your pass on Sunday? Everyone bombing up there on the Sunday morning. They, they weren't very, um, uh, you know, they, they didn't like the cyclists too much. And then on the last morning, again, just yeah, getting overtaken by a car, towing a trailer. They're not aware of what they're doing. The, the, generally, the, the professional drivers, they will give you the space. I, over all of America, I didn't feel unsafe. Riding in London is much worse. And I commute in London, so on the bike, um, and that kind of you get used to it. So it, it wasn't wasn't worse. Um, probably about two or three times actual heart stopping moments, but I think I probably felt it over longer periods of time compared to yourself. Um, like I say, when you hear about people who are getting getting hit further along in the race, and you're coming up to those areas, it's really hard to keep those thoughts out of your head, depending on the kind of person you are. Um, and with the RVs, because they rent the RVs, you see, so the people aren't necessarily used to the size of their vehicle, so they don't have that spatial awareness. So, and you're aware of that, and like, like I said, I have a mirror, so you can see them coming, and I did ditch uh, once or twice to get out of the way. But it was more the long-term, uncertain, it'd be a whole day of thinking, you're bracing just a little bit more tightly than you ordinarily would, but then there are massive stretches where you've got huge shoulder with great rumble strips that any would wake any driver up. So it swings and roundabouts for me. I've got, I can't really compare it to London, but there were some like whole days, really, of, of where it gets in my brain. But that's just me. You might be more buoyant and stronger than me. I don't know. So One sticks out in my mind was a, um, a logging truck. It got like that close that I could feel the heat off the engine. It was that, it was that close. Like, so that was the worst one. Yeah, I think I tend to agree with these gents. It was literally two or three incidents within within three and a half weeks, 4,000-odd uh, miles. And um, 
in, in, in some of the states, um, it, it, the drivers actually would sit behind you. They wouldn't hoot. They wouldn't overtake you. They wouldn't go onto the other side of the road because it was a solid line. And they'd just sit patiently while you're going up this hill for like miles, <laughs> literally. And, they, and it got annoying after a while. It's like, please come past. Like, you wave these guys past you and they wouldn't move. So there were extremes, but you also get used to people passing you and, and literally going to the other side of the road to pass you. That when somebody comes as close as they pass you in, in London, then you sort of, you know, it's, it's just that relative measure. But I think, you know, commuting into, into, the, into town every day, I mean, you, you, you basically have close calls every day. Um, and, and in the US, it was, it was, it was fine. <laughs> Same story. Um, so riding in London, probably every other ride, I'll have a close call. Um, I did a ride at the weekend. I had, I had four in, just in London. Um, and across the States, um, I, I didn't ride in Kansas. I, I had to shortcut that part. That's the, the worst state. But um, across the rest of the distance, um, I only had one incident, and that was in, um, that was in Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky was actually what I would say is the safest state to cycle in. Um, even the guy who threw a beer can at me uh, did it from the other side of the road. You know, he, he gave me a full lane um, and then threw a beer can at me. Um, the one incident I had was in a, a really intense storm. Uh, I was on a dual carriageway, really, really wide shoulder, like the shoulder you could fit a truck in the shoulder. Um, and I'm, I'm driving, uh, so riding along, and, and this car came across the central reservation to come and pull into some stores on this side. And he was literally just cutting across the road straight at me. And I just happened to be looking down at my computer at the time. Then I looked up and I'm like, fuck, there's a truck coming straight at me. And luckily, uh, we both swerved in the right direction. Um, but that was touch and go. Um, yeah. Hi. Um, so I'm in about six weeks doing ride across Britain and terrified. Um, and I'm in that packing list phase so what's the one thing that you had in your bags that might not have been the should we say mandated essential but that you couldn't live without my rock um i there was um yeah for me it's about keeping your head in the game um uh, so actually probably my phone as well i really enjoy social media and and doing stupid things on twitter and instagram but um, I, I found um, a pile of rocks in Idaho with a sign that said free rocks and I was like can't pass that up so I, 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 didn't, I didn't pick the biggest one obviously but I picked up a rock um, and painted it to look like Sylvester Stallone um, and carried that across the states and that was my thing I was going to get that thing all the way to Yorktown um, anything that kind of keeps your head in the game um, that's, that's going to be important um, one item, two words, chamois cream, <laughs> and lots of it. <laughs> and um, ASOS repair gel for the evenings. Um, it, um, you'll carry whatever you feel you need, depending on your level of risk. Um, personally, it, I had a couple of little mementos that, I was, that was given to me, and it's when the going gets tough, you sort of revert back to those little keepsakes that were given. Um, to see you safely across or wh whatever they may be um, because you'll, you know, you'll have whatever you want you'll take whatever you want um, but what do you need when it gets really tough and you know, it's been mentioned it's 
physically you can do it, but mentally, when it gets tough, what, what do you need to see through that? So that, that, that's important. Um, well, me and Dan kind of obsessed about cutting as much weight as possible um, before we went. So we just aired on the side of caution. I mean, we'd even chopped our toothbrush in two, which sounds ridiculous, but you think that's probably at least five, ten grams in that. And then it all just like adds up. And then as we were leaving, we had a big family dinner uh, before we went away. And Dan descends from Vikings. So we got, our joke team name was the Vikings. And our family's made up a medallion with the Vikings on it. And uh, they're all really happy giving it to us. And, uh, and they hand it to us. And I was like, oh, thanks so much. And I was like, how much do you reckon that weighs? <laughs> I'll just leave that there. But now we, I took him in the end. And it was, it was a real good mental reminder of the team spirit between me and Dan and like why we were doing it and, and that you're also riding for another person. So that's kind of a different dynamic for me and Dan for the rest of the guys that we were riding for the other person the whole time as well. So that was something that egged us along. So I think a symbol of our team was something that really worked for me. My one luxury item that I always take with me is compression leggings. Um, and I sleep in them at night because I just find they help my legs recover faster. Um, and it's, it is like a total luxury item, but it's the one thing that I... I think for me, at the end of the day, like just getting out of your bib shorts and being able to put like something else on is quite nice. Um, and then I have a bracelet that's engraved with something my dad used to always say to me when I was racing. So that kind of I always wear that as well, which is kind of... As you guys are saying, that like kind of memento to keep your head in the game. Your head will go away before your body does. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, can you guys please talk a bit about what kind of training you do and whereabouts? Uh, this year, not a lot. Um, I, uh, I had two major mechanicals uh, sort of last autumn um, uh, in September I ended up with both bikes off the road and then we were moving house it was crazy work period there was lots of other stuff going on so I effectively I, I didn't ride at all until January and then I was very short of time this year um, weather was foul we were traveling a lot so not a lot of training actually but um, generally um, it's not really about the physical training. You need some conditioning. You need a good base. You need to be able to stay on the bike for a long time. But it's not about being super fast. Um, you'll save much more time by being efficient. So um, the sort of things that you would want to prioritize really are, um, well, I mean, I used to do a lot of rides where you go out with no food. Um, you just scavenge for whatever you can find in petrol stations. Um, get used to doing that. And um, always so my my computer i have my the biggest field is set for the pause time so i'm constantly looking at that if i go and stop and grab some food somewhere i take the computer with me i sit that there and i've got this clock just ticking at me reminding me not to stay too long um but i don't think you need to do long rides for physical training um you need to do them to learn what happens with digestion with um, you know, with fit issues and all this sort of stuff, because what happens after 12 hours and what happens after 24, 48, 30, whatever hours is very different. But in terms of actual training, once you've done those rides, I think shorter, harder rides are going to be better for you. Um, so I would, if you haven't done that, obviously you need to do the long rides, learn what happens. But I would prioritise speed work if you're if you're thinking of trying to be competitive. 
Yeah, I think uh, just to sort of add on what Darren was saying in terms of these kind of rides, it's also, you know, efficiency on how you've packed your bike and practicing that. So, you know, you can lose a lot of time, you know, unpacking your things and sleeping and waking up and packing up again. And, you know, you can be up, I can wake up and be ready to go within 10 minutes. And, you know, the other riders are faffing around in the morning and you lose a lot of time. And that's kind of, you know, practicing that. Um, Whereas the you know the riding is is the riding, um, but you know base miles, uh, commuting to the office or or whatever is is, I, I find that is enough for me. So. Um, I've done some long rides, so I know that that's all achievable. So for Trans Am, um, it was shorter, high intensity efforts. Um, the longest ride in training was 150 miles. Um, and uh, I did use a, uh, a coach to, to set the training plan um, just because I wanted to take it more seriously this year and see how, what I could do. Um, and so there was four turbo sessions a week plus Saturday-Sunday rides plus commutes. Um, so I just built it all up. Um, it, it, it's true. Don't, it's key, time is key. So I've got ride time and pause time. I don't have miles an hour. I don't see that at all on the computer. Um, which is frustrating when you stop the day at 198 miles and the next day at 199 miles and then two days later it was 299 miles and you think, I could have just gone around the block, got an extra mile. (laughs) It's quite an expensive way to train but there is a training program called the Trans Am Bike Race um, if you want to do that. That's pretty much what me and Dan did. We did about 2,000 miles in the two years before we went and uh, it was stupid, really, because it, it was a hard hit to our bodies beforehand. But actually, like these guys are saying, and like I'm really glad they're saying it as well, is it is really, it's mostly mental. And like once you've done a couple of long rides, I mean, it's, it's just about t- it's time in the saddle. That's what we learn towards the end of it. That's, it's all about getting used to just cutting, ta- cutting down the time off the saddle. That's the main thing that we learned. And we did do... If you're like a novice novice, we did do a ride from Paris to Lisbon. Um, we took all our gear, and that was a year before. And that actually was a really big learning curve because um, we wanted to do 100 miles a day, which we didn't quite hit. Um, we, we realized we were carrying a load of kit that we didn't need. Um, we started to understand what happens to the body after about seven or eight days. So that's not alien to you if you're going on a long ride. And it's, so even when we're on the Trans Am, after about eight days, you know, we were suffering. Like our bodies were beat but we knew that we were going to cross a barrier where everything just kind of made sense and woke up. So mentally knowing that that period was coming was a huge mental advantage for us, um, which I think that other people perhaps didn't have. Some people hadn't gone for more than four or five days, like other novices. And I think mentally for them, that would have been a harder barrier for them to go through. So like anyone who asks me now, I would definitely say, try and plan like a thousand mile ride with the gear that you're going to take and ride in the way that you think you'll be racing on the, on the race. I would say, like I say, as a rookie, that is definitely what saved me and Dan because we knew we could do it and then we started getting lazy with the training after that. And we, we was like, oh, it's a little bit cold in it. So we just stay inside, like, I'm going to do 20 minutes in the gym, it'll be fine. But um, we did suffer for it. We could have trained better, but I would 100% say do a 10, 12-day ride so you understand your body better and... You, you know, how you diet and time on the saddle and that sort of stuff. Anyone else? Okay, I guess we'll wrap it up. I think most of us are going to be sticking around for a little bit if anyone has any questions that they want to come and ask us personally. 
Um, but thank you all for listening, and let's give these guys a round of applause. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 